Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Emily Burt, editor. And I'm Lucinda Rouse, senior reporter at Third Sector, the UK's leading title for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. This week, we conclude our four-part environmental series, having explored in previous episodes how funders can help voluntary organisations respond to the climate crisis, identified who among your service users are most affected by the climate emergency, and received suggestions for how charities without a specific environmental remit can incorporate climate considerations into their work. And later on in Charity Changed My Life, we'll be hearing from a person who has found Fair For You's Iceland Food Club to be a lifeline. But let's get straight into our main feature. This week, we'll be exploring how charities can measure the impact and results associated with their climate work. It's a highly pertinent question. Spend of any kind invariably needs to be justified to donors and funders. And for an issue as large scale and long term as climate change, it's not an easy one to measure particularly for voluntary organisations which aren't primarily focused on conserving hectares of rainforest, for example. Fortunately, we have two guests joining us whose work revolves around considering this very topic. First up is Carol Botton, who is the Chief Executive of the Voluntary Organisations Network North East, or VON, which developed and now hosts the Going Green Together Climate Action Alliance Initiative. Members have access to a framework which, as the name suggests, helps voluntary organisations in the northeast to collaborate in their quest to achieve net zero. And the tools and framework have now been rolled out further afield to Scotland. Hi, Carol. Hello, good morning. Also joining us is Jack Chelman, Chief Project Officer at the Global Returns Project, an organisation which seeks to provide a bridge between philanthropists and environmental charities, framing donations as investments within a fund management portfolio, just that the returns are green rather than cash, and focusing on those which generate the highest positive environmental impact. Hello, Jack. Hi, so great to be here. Well, it's a delight to have you with us, and I'm particularly glad to have you here given that measuring environmental impact is such a key focus of your work. Can you start by telling us why climate interventions are a really difficult area to measure? Absolutely. Well, probably the biggest challenge when it comes to you know, measuring climate impact is an assumption of the need for carbon numbers. And I think probably that comes from the proliferation of buying carbon offsets, often on the sort of corporate sustainability side. A couple things to say there, you know, when you have a number on your sort of carbon impact, something to talk about your carbon emissions, that's obviously really important, right? Or the specific impact that you're having in terms of avoiding emissions, or if you're focused on climate works, that's really important. But organizations don't always have that activity, often because their activities are a little more systemic, they're a little more qualitative. And so it's harder to boil down to that carbon number. And I think often when, you know, the Global Returns Project talks about carbon offsetting, even if you sort of disregard some of the challenges, the controversies associated with that activity, you know, the reality is not all of the things that we need to do for our climate can be boiled down to sort of quantitative carbon numbers. Again, we have to do some of these more systemic things. So I think that's often the most challenging thing is the assumption is you need that, you know, single digit summary of what you're doing on the climate. And it's often not that simple and it needs to be a little more complicated. 
Absolutely. And measuring climate impact, it's difficult. It is complicated. And I'm sure this is a really big reason why we're not seeing more people doing it. Everyone knows about the urgency and the need for this to be happening. But as you say, the practicalities of it, possibly harder to achieve. But Carol, I wonder, why do you think it is particularly important for charities to be going out there and trying to measure their climate impact? Well, I mean, I always say that the climate emergency cannot be disaggregated from two other things that are happening at the same time. And our Going Green Together project aims to address all three elements. So there's addressing the climate emergency. A lot of that, as Jack says, is around reducing carbon emissions, but not only that. Then there's addressing ecological collapse and improving biodiversity and supporting nature. And the third element is around just transition. So ensuring that our people and communities are supported into the new green economy, making sure that they can access new jobs, access opportunities, reduce their costs so that they have a better quality of life, all of those sorts of things. And for me, it's that element, which is why the voluntary sector needs to be involved in this. You know, one of my stock phrases in this is it's not just about the polar bears. For me, climate and addressing the climate emergency is a people issue. At the end of the day, this lump of rock that we live on called Earth will survive. But will humans be able to inhabit it? That is the question. If climate change continues in the way that we're seeing at the moment, the answer to that is no. So if you're a people organisation, which voluntary sector organisations definitely are, they're all about addressing and supporting people and communities, then addressing the climate emergency, ecological collapse and the just transition is absolutely key to your purpose, I think. And this is why we're encouraging organisations to make it part of what they do alongside their core mission. And I'm sure your previous podcast that talked about why this is an issue for the voluntary sector covered that off. Yeah, for me, it's about making sure that organisations understand, I suppose, that the nuance on this is that most disadvantaged people and communities are likely to be disproportionately affected by climate change. And therefore, it's even more pertinent that voluntary sector organisations do have their, their part to play in this space. Yes. So let's take this a step further then. So we've identified who among your service users are most likely to be negatively impacted by climate change, by environmental degradation. You've worked out how you are going to respond to that in whatever way. And as we have seen in the discussions over the past few weeks, there are lots of different ways in which different organisations working in different areas can have a positive impact in responding to this crisis. Then you've managed to secure the funding, which is invariably needed. And hopefully we can talk a little bit later about zero budget interventions. But for now, assuming that you needed to get money from somebody to respond to the climate crisis in whichever way you see fit. Now it's time to report back to them and to demonstrate that you've spent their money well, that their donation was worthwhile. How can charities do that when it is not a sort of X number of food parcels given out or whatever? It's often much more abstract. What are your suggestions on that? I think it's a combination of things. I mean, measuring impact is a challenge full stop for the voluntary sector. I'm sure you've covered this off plenty of times. It's something that we always struggle with because, you know, it's complex and quite a lot of the work we do there aren't immediate outcomes, it's much more long term and may take a while. And and work around the climate is 
very similar to that. I mean, what I always suggest to organisations within this sphere and more broadly when talking about impact, it's about sitting down with your funders, treating them as partners in this space and working out between you what is it that you want to measure and why? What is it that that measurement will tell you? And another one of my stock phrases, I think when we're talking about the more obvious climate action projects that voluntary sector organisations might carry out. So that might be, for example, doing some work with their local community around energy efficiency in homes. It might be about establishing a community garden, these sorts of things. For me, it's about people place and planet so these types of projects work best when they will have a positive impact on the people that are taking place a positive impact on the place where those people live and hopefully at the same time a positive impact on the planet in some way so it's then drilling down well what is the impact we want to have on people is it around increasing their knowledge their skills their understanding their confidence as the initial thing and then what might that lead to behaviour change, talking to others and influencing others about their behaviours and doing things. Then thinking about well, what's the positive impact we want to have on the place that we're in. That might be, you know, number of trees planted or increase amount of green space given over to bee friendly planting, for example, those sorts of things. And then potentially thinking about the positive impact on the planet. And some of those things might cross over, but that's when you might come into increased biodiversity, planting or doing things that will be carbon sinks, for example. So, yeah, it's about really thinking about what is the impact that you're wanting to have and why I think a lot of people forget about the what well why are we measuring that what are we going to do with that information afterwards and because this is quite a new field for a lot of non-environmental charities and I think one of the key things that we're needing to focus on at the moment is learning so what are we learning from this what works what doesn't work what might we do differently and so I think there needs to be a real emphasis on that. And certainly in the project that we're doing at the moment, because it's a pilot, a lot of what we are taking from the work. Yes, we're doing the basic monitoring and evaluation and we're doing, you know, talking to the partners and the participants about the impact we're having on them. But a lot of our efforts are around, well, what are we learning from this? What would we do differently the next time around to be more impactful and more effective? And obviously looking to achieve maximum impact and thinking about how you're framing in order to give a really clear message is very important. Jack, we would be really interested to hear how do you frame your portfolio returns when it comes to those environmental gains? Absolutely. Well, probably worth just starting by clarifying you know, exactly what we're doing, because obviously it's sort of at the intersection of different things. I mean, the Global Returns Project selects a group of best-in-class climate charities from around the world, really, really simple. And then we assess those organizations on a six monthly basis to produce detailed impact reports, to make sure that all the organizations are still best in class. We'll remove an organization if we find a group that's even higher performing in a particular sector. So it's really all about packaging up environmental charities that are doing great work and making it really easy for individuals, but also for businesses for financial institutions to donate to them and really increase the amount that goes to these organizations. So that's sort of what we're doing. And, and you asked about, you know, how we frame what we do in terms of 
environmental gains. You know, as I said, a big part of what we do on a regular basis is produce these really rigorous impact reports every six months on what these charities are doing. And what we've tried to do in those reports, obviously, we report on each of the individual organizations that we've selected for this portfolio. There's seven constituents at the moment. But the sort of maybe more interesting bit in answer to your question is we've developed alongside a team of leading environmental scientists who serve on our due diligence committee, a number of metrics of our own for trying to measure the hard to measure in the not-for-profit space and package it up in a way that, that works best. So I'll just sort of address two of those metrics quickly. One is we call portfolio diversity. And so this is really trying to talk about, you know, how do you address the reach of a portfolio like this, all the activities that these kinds of organizations are addressing. And what we've done there is with this team of scientists, we've mapped out all the activities that climate not-for-profit organizations can engage in. And every six months, we actually compare that full list of activities to the activities of the portfolio we have. And we report that as a percentage figure. So for example, if portfolio diversity is 59%, that means we're hitting about 60% of all the activities we could be in that area. And that really boils down to something that's interesting in terms of breadth of activities, what's being achieved. So that's metric one. And the other interesting metric is what we call our global returns rate. And that's really simply a two-digit score that we apply to our group of charities as a whole every six months. That comes from individual scores we assign to each of the charities. It also includes that portfolio diversity score. So it's really an amalgamation of all the, the rigorous metrics we have. And again, we report that as a two-digit score. Now, it's something we put together. So we're very transparent that it's an in-house metric and it's not you know, something that's peer-reviewed in that way. But what's interesting is because we apply the same principles every six months, that figure can rise or fall depending on the you know, successes, the challenges that have been faced by the organizations in our portfolio in a particular period. Yeah, it sounds like rigor is the word of the day in that and understandably so given that you need to be demonstrating to your investors that they're putting their money in the right places. And could we perhaps look at this from a slightly different perspective based on your experience of designing these frameworks and working out what needs to be measured, how you measure the hard to measure, thinking about charities who don't have necessarily a specific environmental remit, do you have any suggestions on how they can start in terms of thinking about what kind of framework would be best suited to them for capturing these results? Yeah, a couple thoughts there, absolutely. I mean, I think the first thing I have to say is if you're an organization that doesn't have a specific environmental remit, you know, I think the first thing is, are there ways to incorporate the environment into your remit. And the only reason I feel obligated to say that is, of course, because we're facing a climate emergency. And we know that if we don't tackle the climate crisis, really in the next six and a half years, scientists tell us we have to deliver impact before 2030. So if we don't do something in the next six and a half years, it's not only bad for the planet. I mean, Carol's really eloquently talked about the critical needs for people. 
what that really means is we can't address any of the other things that not-for-profits that the third sector does so well unless we tackle the climate crisis first. So that's the first thing I would say is any way that we can all leverage our networks, our skills, our expertise to address this while still staying true to the, the identity you have as an organization, of course, that's, that's really important. I would say the other thing, the statistic I often think about is that the fact that less than 2% of all the philanthropy around the world every year goes to climate mitigation efforts. And obviously, that's a striking statistic for organizations that are focused on these issues for environmental not-for-profits. But I think it also says something to organizations, as we're talking about, that may not have a specific environmental remit, but are considering these issues, thinking about this. And I think what that says there is the status quo in terms of how we carry out environmental works as not-for-profits and report on them isn't really working. It's not innovative enough to change the direction of that flow, that 2% statistic. And there's not a lot of attention going to these activities in the charitable sector. And what that tells me is, you know, we've been talking about sort of measuring the hard to measure. I think finding ways to establish a some kind of framework for measuring impact, even if it's not that perfect carbon number that we were talking about before, but saying, you know, we're going to define environmental impact in this clear way. We're going to talk a little more qualitatively about, as Carol was saying, the longer term outcomes that we're aiming for, or we're going to frame it basically sort of defining your terms, but then abiding by that in your impact reporting and just setting up a rigorous framework, even if it's not that carbon number, I think is really important and catches people's attention. Absolutely. I think that measuring the hard to measure thing is, again, something that we keep coming back to. Carol, yes, we'd love to hear your thoughts on this as well. And if you also have any examples of voluntary organizations using your framework to measure impact and capturing this hard to measure data. For me, there's a bit two, possibly more. I'm one of these people that always says two. And then when I start talking, I realize there's three or four. But let's start with two. There's the work that organizations can and I would say should be doing in terms of their organization's carbon footprint and a large part of what Going Green Together is all about is about organizations taking steps organizationally around their operations to reduce their negative impact on the environment and how we are doing that is we're supporting organizations to use um, a smart carbon calculator other carbon footprint calculators are available, which enables them to measure a baseline of their carbon emissions across you know, transports, across electricity and gas usage. And then it goes even further into your scope three emissions, which are more around yeah. your supply chain and your partners and helping them to reduce their carbon emissions. So that enables organisations to measure their carbon footprints and then take action, which is where the second part of our framework comes in. And we support organisations to go through an accreditation called Investors in the Environment, which has several elements to it, but includes all the things that you would expect around transport, around resource management, around leadership engagement with your your staff and volunteers and all sorts of other things and the idea is that you go through the investors in the environment framework 
make changes to your operations across all these various areas through developing and then actioning an action plan. And then a year later, or on an annual basis, you do your carbon footprinting exercise again, and you will see hopefully a drop in your carbon emissions. And then over time, you can continue to measure that really clear environmental impact around your carbon emissions. And then the second part of what we're doing in the Going Green Together is supporting organisations with project development funding. So again, from a huge market research we did with the sector, a lot of mainstream voluntary sector organisations, and I'm calling them that, and what I mean by that are non-environmental charities, are wanting to do climate action projects with their beneficiaries. But because this is a new area of work for them, they need some time and some space to do that engagement work with their beneficiaries around what interests you, what element of environmental action do you want to work in, and then also bringing in partner organisations, which may be other voluntary sector organisations that have more experience in this area, including environmental organisations. And so through that, what we're measuring um, and supporting them to do is develop uh, climate action projects. And part of that is them thinking about once they've got funding for the projects that they've developed through our funding, how they will measure that. And it goes back to our earlier conversation around what's the impact on the people, what's the impact on the place, and what's the impact on the planet. So I think the point I was trying to make is separating out the work that you're doing organisationally around your operations, I think that's reasonably straightforward in terms of using a carbon footprinting calculator. And then the work that you're doing in terms of more project based work with your beneficiaries and working out the impact there. You talked a lot about the sharing of key learnings within your network. That's sort of a core part of the Going Green Together initiative. Do you have any specific really strong examples or maybe a single example that you could share of an organisation within your network that is doing really great work in this area? Yeah, I mean, one of the interesting pieces of learning with our partners, so Smart Carbon and Investors in the Environment, is that this is one of the, the first times that they've supported a cohort to use those tools. And they're finding it really interesting how the organisations are sharing learning and supporting each other, because sometimes this can be tough work for voluntary sector organisations. It's not their number one priority. You know, if you're a food bank, your number one priority is providing food to people that need it. But more and more organisations are taking action in this space, but it's still a lower priority than their core work. So being part of a cohort and that peer accountability as well as the peer sharing and learning, I think, is really, really key to all of this. And I think, you know, some of the Act Green Together, which is the, the seed funding projects that I spoke about earlier, they're doing a huge amount of learning in terms of they've all taken quite different approaches to engaging their communities around the projects that they may develop. Some have taken more of a conversational approach, you know, getting groups of people together or going to groups of people that are already meeting and having kind of very open conversations with them in this space. Other organisations are taking much more of a doing some action with organisations. So a good example of that is the Lynx Youth Project, who have done some tree planting activities with a group of young people. 
mainly because young people don't want to just sit around talking about it. They want to do some action. But in doing the action, they are then having conversations about what else might you want to do? What are you enjoying about this experience? What are you not enjoying about the experience? And then just really practical things for the organisation around where do we buy the trees from? Where do we get the expertise about the right trees for the right places? And building those sort of partnerships and links. And then what we're hoping is once we've got a group of organisations that have been through this process, that they, when we go again, can act as mentors to those coming up behind them and share their learning, Mm. share those contacts and their knowledge and their skills as well. So kind of going for a bit of a pyramid (laughs) sales strategy, but around environmental impact rather than selling stuff. And that comment about charities not operating in silos, having those strong community bonds is also really really important. Jack, I wonder if you have any further thoughts on why charities are so uniquely well-placed to respond to the climate crisis and why is it so important that this is something that is happening now? Obviously, there are a lot of actors out there trying to deliver climate solutions, but in these next few years, we need solutions at significant scale and we need solutions at speed as well, really quickly And that combination of two things is really tough, right? Governments are trying to take climate action. They can operate at scale, but they can't operate very quickly, right? Technologies like direct air capture are going to be really important things. We need those technologies, but they're not going to be mainstream for many years still. Again, they're not fast enough. Sustainable investing is really important, and that can act quickly, but There's a lot of greenwash out there, and so maybe it doesn't have the scale we need. So what I'm trying to say is charities, not-for-profits, actually can operate very quickly, and they can deliver at the scale that we need. Not-for-profits have a hugely important role to play in this decisive decade, and anything they can do is really important. Couldn't agree more. So then a final question for you both. I'd be really interested to get your thoughts on low or no-cost solutions for charities who are looking to become greener beyond their sort of basic operational level from the work that you've both been doing in your respective areas? Are there any great examples that stand out that you could share? I mean, I think some really basic things leading on from what Jack just said, actually. For me, what is needed is, um, and I'm sure nobody's going to disagree with me in this point, is for people and organisations at whatever scale, to all be taking action. And all those little bits will add up to significant scale at speed in this decisive decade that will make a difference. And quite a lot of that stuff is free because what we're talking about is having conversations with people, raising awareness. So if you're you know, running a knit and natter group, for example, why not decide to do something around environmental issues so it might be that you're knitting green hearts for the great big green week instead of knitting crochet squares for the cat and dog shelter or something like that so it's like look at what you're already doing and thinking how can we use this as a space to talk to people and engage people and understand more about their perspective in this what's holding them back where they can make changes and encourage them to do so I think that's a really simple thing to do. And we need to recognise that voluntary sector organisations often are working with people and communities 
that are disengaged from government messages or local authority messages or whatever. And they're trusted by these people and can provide a safe space for those conversations. And it's a two-way thing. That will have a positive impact potentially on people's behaviour change in their own lives and in their households. But it's an opportunity for voluntary sector organisations to learn about what interests people in this space, what doesn't interest people, and that then can lead into the, well, the next thing we can do, the knit and that group, they have a chat, they find out that they're really interested in gardening. Or let's do some pollinating planting with this group or encourage them to join with other groups that we work with to do something collectively. So embedding it in your work, it's about, you know, taking what you're already doing and seeing whether you can put either an environmental conversational twist in there or some environmental action stuff that's, you know, linked to what people are interested in. Easy peasy, lemon squeezy. Brilliant. Love that idea. Yeah, I totally agree with Carol's points. And I think the thing I would add as well, which is a a zero budget sort of option, is collaborating with environmental charities. Mm. So even if you are not an environmental charity yourself, even if, you know, you're addressing all the other critical things that, you know, not-for-profits address, build coalitions, right? Like find ways to do joint partnerships or projects or campaigns with environmental groups that may focus on these issues and you don't need to be an expert in it yourself in order to support them. And again, we can't address all the things we need to on poverty, on ill health, on human rights, on all the things that not-for-profits do so well unless we tackle climate change first. And so this is all about building those networks, those partnerships to make sure that we're doing that. Fantastic. Well, greening knit and natter and cross charity coalitions sound like a great note to end on. Jack and Carol, thank you both so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. It's been great to talk to you both. Moving on now to Charity Changed My Life, in which we bring you stories of people whose lives have been transformed for the better thanks to the work of charities. This week we hear from Michelle, who has benefited from the credit service provided by the Iceland Food Club, which is a collaboration between social enterprise Fair For You and the high street retailer Iceland Foods. It first launched as a pilot three years ago in 2020 before rolling out nationally in August last year and has now supported well over 25,000 families in total. My name is Michelle, I'm 29. I live with my partner and my little one who's two. And we've got a dog as well. I've got chronic fatigue, so everyday stuff can really just knock it out of me. Um, Sometimes even like silly things like getting up and having a shower or hanging the washing out in the garden. Because we live in a first floor flat, it's quite hard to bring a heavy load of wet washing down, hang it out and all of that kind of stuff. I can't walk overly far without feeling exhausted and knocked out the next day. So the use of the car is essential, but food is also essential. We have to really like budget and figure out. And I think that's when like the fair for you card comes in handy, because if we have a short month and have to use a car more, then we know that we've got like the food card to fall back onto. So it's kind of like a bit of a safety net. The fair for you card is a top up card where you can apply for a loan and either repay it weekly or monthly. So the loan is used for either Iceland or food warehouse. We usually buy our essentials firstly, like bread, milk, things like that. But then in Iceland, I find they have things 
in shops that you wouldn't normally find anywhere else. They have things like TGI, Chiquitos and stuff like that. And it's nice to be able to like have that, even though you can't go out and spend a load of money on it, even if you'd want to. And they do really nice desserts and drinks and two for five pound on things like fruit and veg and stuff like that. So it's, it's treats for little one as well as like healthy stuff. It's one of our essential things now within our household. Like we always try to make sure there's money on it. So then if for any reason anything comes up and swallows our excess income, then we know we can always have what we need. I guess if we didn't have it, it would be a case of having to ask family and friends. And obviously that's not really something that I want to be in a position that I have to do, mainly because I would feel like then I was putting them out when everybody kind of has their own things going on. But thankfully we haven't had to get to that point. The freedom that it gives you with the food card thing is you can repay it within your budget and you're like in control of it. It's a lifeline sometimes <laughs> for some months. That was Michelle talking about her family's positive experience of the Fair For You Iceland Food Club. We've got more Charity Change My Life stories coming up in the next few weeks. And if you'd like your charity to be featured, we would love to hear from you too. Details of how to get in touch and submit a story idea featuring one of your service users are in the show notes. Well, that's it for this week. Next week, I'll be back with our reporter, Rory Poulter, for a discussion with two guests about the role of faith-based charities in the sector today. Thank you to our guests, Carol Botton and Jack Chelman, and our producers, Inga Marsden and Nav Pal. Have a lovely bank holiday weekend. <laughs> <laughs>